1: Bukayo Saka starts us on the path to make England Arsenal again. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name's L.A. Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Uh, Yeah, Bukayo Saka trying to make England Arsenal again. Uh, There was a time when England and Arsenal were somewhat synonymous. Uh, Not so much the case anymore, but Bukayo Saka gets to play for England, gets to score for England, gets to prove he is England's best player. I think that's pretty much indisputable. We knew that already. And, uh, you know, Emil Smith-Rowe waiting in the wings to maybe make it uh, more Arsenal again. Even that much more so. So... We're going to cover that to the extent that that needs to be covered. We're going to talk news, so goalkeeping news, uh, Everton news, Spurs news, because there's uh, good, bad, and hilarious related to those clubs, uh, especially where Spurs is concerned. Hilarious is always uh, in the frame. We might mention the fact that Arsenal are playing in the United States, in Florida, later this summer, some Euro 2020 stuff. So a lot on the plate and maybe even a little Brentford talk. And here to do all that with me is Tim. You can find him on Twitter. Still better. Hello, Tim. Hello there, and Paul. You can find him on Twitter at pausing my pants. Little pause. Woo, woo! Indeed. Uh, if you miss Clive, don't worry. Clive is in the middle of what we are calling a manifesto, a three-part transfer manifesto, which is a silly way of just saying a three-part series on who needs to go, who needs to come in, and really a philosophy around building the team using the three departments. And we broken it into three departments. Midfield uh, was done just two days ago. You can listen to that. It features. Uh, players like Odegaard, Buendia, and Awar, but also players like Lukanga, um, uh, uh, Besuma, Berg, uh, and and a couple other players, Gravenberg. So you can check that out on Patreon if you want. We'll be doing defenders and goalkeepers tomorrow and then the forwards uh, next week. So that's all coming up, plus our Euro Daily with Phil Costa. We'll be doing an intro episode, getting you ready to know which players to keep an eye on, which teams and groups to, to keep an eye on, Obviously, all of them, but uh, Phil will be joining me for that. And then you'll be getting dispatches daily during the Euros as well as a regular dose of the Arsenal Vision podcast uh, at that time as well. So essentially, the content machine just keeps firing content into your ear holes at at an alarming pace and with incredible volume. So, uh, Tim, I'll start with you real quick. I I don't really get a sense that you get too worked up about the England team. I've I've never Mm -hmm. really taking that from you, although I assume that, yep. that you care. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I I think it is easier to care, even whether you're English or not English, when there are Arsenal players and particularly likable Arsenal players in the side. Mm-hmm. There is one right now. His name is Bakayo Saka. I don't know how big a part of the team he will be when the tournament kicks off properly, given that in the warm-up game that England just played, Gareth Southgate picked a guy who doesn't even play in the Euro team. Uh, that's right. Jesse Lingard starting for England, despite not being picked, for the Euro Euro 2020 team, which is one way to do it, Gareth. But how do you react to to Saka getting his goal? I mean, obviously a wonderful moment, but does it give you that little extra jolt uh, to get excited about England for this summer?
2: Yeah, definitely. And and, and I know there's been a lot of debate about um, whether it'd be better for Arsenal for Saka to go or Saka to not go. And I, I always come down on the side of the player here. What what would the player want? And the player will always want to go. And I do think that, you know, burnout and things like that, they are not not concerns, but I think they're just things that fans worry about a lot more than players and managers. I also think that we've got so much depth in the kind of wide forward positions that we can afford to, you know, ease Saka into the season next season, not least because we're probably going to really need him in January. Um, for Afcon, when Nicola Pepe, for example, goes off, so I, I would very much think ease him into next season, have him in tip-top condition for January. Um, but 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 just on a on I guess a personal level, the, the other thing I was thinking was just it's not right for Saka's season to end with being not being in the Euro squad. Um, and I, I think had Mason Greenwood not been injured, I think he might have been one of the ones cut. And I do understand it just because England have so much depth in those wide forward positions as well. And I do understand that if it's a choice between Saka and Greenwood, you go, well, realistically, they're going to be on the bench and who's more likely to get me a goal mm-hmm. off the bench? And it's probably Greenwood. So I would have understood that decision. But I was thinking to myself, man, like Saka doesn't deserve to end the um, the season like that so I'm really happy I, I don't think he'll play a lot in the tournament anyway so I don't I don't you know I don't even think there's a huge risk of um, certainly not physical burnout there but yeah definitely having um, having that Arsenal interest in the England squad which we've not had for a few years really at the last World Cup you know we only had Danny Welbeck and he was a, a bit part player and I kind of view this in two ways because on one hand sometimes I quite so for me, England, you, you're right in your assessment of, of me in England. I, I don't massively care. I, I do, um, you know, I kind of pick them up and put them down. And for tournaments, I'm, I'm like, yeah, I can get into this. I, it doesn't mean nearly as much to me as Arsenal. But um, for me, you know, all my friends that I know who don't support Arsenal, but like football, it's just a nice way to share some kind of football to be invested in with them as well. And, you know, and I know full well that the second England go out, I put it all down again and probably won't watch the qualifiers, etc., etc. et cetera. So it, it is nice having that Arsenal interest there at the same time. Sometimes it's easier to watch England without the Arsenal interest because... God, I remember those years where David Seaman was in the team, and it's great, like Euro 96, when David Seaman's one of the heroes, but then when people, you know, like World Cup 2002, when everyone gets stuck into him, it's horrible, and sometimes you watch England when there's a few of your guys playing, and you and you don't really watch the game, you think, I hope it's not, like, I hope it's not one of the Arsenal players that fucks up, or misses a penalty, or because there's just this this really horrible kind of I, I think it's faded a bit now, but this, you know, this horrible thing where if England go out, there's always a scapegoat and you don't want it to be your guy. And you kind of watch England games every time that your guy gets the ball, you're like, please don't give it away, please don't give it away. Because like you feel like you're justifying their presence there. I I, I don't feel like that was Saka anyway, even if he played every minute of every game, because you know, he's really good, he's really young. I really trust him like that anyway. He's an attacker, which I think is different to when you've got like Sol Campbell or Ashley Cole or Tony Adams or David Seaman in the team. Um, but uh, but I was I was so pleased for him to get his goal um, last night as well because, you know, as I said, I don't think realistically, I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't get any minutes at all in the tournament. And I kind of think that's OK. I, I think, you know... I think he should go, um, not least because there's a World Cup next year as well. And I'm sure he'll be in he'll be in that squad. Um, so I was just pleased like for him to get this moment as well. So even if he doesn't play at the Euros, he's got his winning goal for England um, and in front of a crowd as well. Which Yeah. Um, which which I think was a little bit more special so yeah absolutely stoked for him really pleased to have um, a really likable Arsenal representative who doesn't have a lot of baggage and therefore like I said with Seaman and Adams sometimes people were out for those guys or Wilshere no one's out for Bukayo Saka because he's lovely and he's great so um, yeah really really pleased for him and it does add some intrigue for me for England this summer
1: yeah and I, I think if you listen to his comments after and what it meant to him, he said, this is what I dreamt, dreamt of as, as a little yeah. boy. I mean, a guy who comes up through the Arsenal Academy telling you that what he dreamt of is scoring for England, it tells you how much it means. And look, we're trying to negotiate a new deal with Emil Smith-Rowe, a contract extension. I don't think you want these players to believe, if I want to go play for my country, I have to go to another club. You know, if Saka doesn't get picked and Smith-Rowe's negotiating, he's saying, can I, can I get an England call-up playing for Arsenal right now? Do I need to go somewhere else for my career? Uh, If I want to be a national team player. I mean, these are all little details that factor in. Look, in a vacuum, if I had to choose Saka playing this summer versus not playing, I'd choose not playing. But it's not in a vacuum. And we don't have to always view everything through the lens of of the worst case scenario and worrying about it, even though I am Whiskers. So, like, I love it for him. I'm thrilled for him. He probably won't play a lot of minutes. I hope if he does play, every time he steps on the pitch, he scores a wonder goal, but you know, it gives me a reason to care about England a little bit more, and and that's you know always a little bit more fun when you have an investment in in that team in those tournaments. So yeah, I I'm really happy about it for him. I think for the for the status of the club, it's it's a good thing for Arsenal Eng, English Arsenal players to get into the England team. And uh, I'm not going to waste a lot of energy worrying about you know whether he can stay fit. We don't have to spend a lot more time on this, but for for you, Paul. Easy for you to just be happy with him and set aside questions about conditioning and and the fact that he needs rest. Maybe I can ask you this question. Do you think the one thing, though, is that it is incumbent upon Arteta to do what I think Wenger was always very good at, which is have the discipline to say you get a full summer break away from the game when the tournament is over and you can come back when you're ready, rather than rushing him to be right back at the start of the season. I, that That is one thing that I, I think we could get into a bit. Do you think that that's an important thing that Arteta has to keep in mind? Yes. Um, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I
3: think that's a good point. Look, I would have been selfishly, I would have been delighted if he hadn't been picked, you know. Uh, I would have just said, oh, great, well he will get the summer off. He can relax. He can get pissed off they didn't pick him and and look to prove them wrong. Uh, when the season starts again. On the other hand, everything Tim said, everything you said, makes perfect sense. Um, the only problem with Saka playing for England, and like I've, I like I'm Irish, um, I have often in years, decades gone by kind of supported England in in the Euros and the World Cup, which is maybe just because those are the players I'm kind of a bit more familiar with. As long as they're not... Like, there's a point they get to in the in the tournament where they start getting cocky and bragging about shit and you hear the commentators going coming on. About, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't mind that. So I kind of understand. But, like, it's just the tone changes and, like, you know, they start talking about the little teams, like they're going to crush them. And I'm like... All right, now I'm you're starting to put me off again just when I was warming up to you. Hmm. So my point being, um I'll probably warm up to watching England but probably be very frustrated when they never play my boy and uh, like isn't you know the worst thing is they put him in the subs and then don't use him and I end up watching a bunch of England games to watch Harry Kane running around. That's that's the downside of Saka playing for England. I get to watch way too many players I do not like and they don't bring on my boy Saka. So, but that's my personal reflection. I think either way, you know, there's a plus and a minus to him playing. I'm delighted for him. And at the end of the day, isn't that what it's all about?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I I do think that we are in a position with our attacking players. It it is the one department where I, I think you would say, if Saka has to come back a couple weeks late, that we have the ability to cover for that. And with an African Cup of Nations coming in January that will take some of those attacking players away, like Nicola Pepe, having Saka be fitter and fresher at that time of the season, which is hard enough because you've just gone through the, the holiday program, it's it's really important. And so I, I think Arteta managing that will be, will be something to keep an eye on because with no other tournaments that we are invested in, no other games that we have to play, I think he can afford to not have Saka right away. Cause it's not like he says, look, I've got games twice a week right from the start and we got to get going. So we'll see how he handles that. Tim, one of the stories that's sort of just breaking. And so I don't know entirely how to cover it, how seriously to cover it, but there are rumors that Luis Campos, the director of football from Lille responsible for building the team that just pipped PSG to the title, the Monaco team that won the title, and, and formerly of Real Madrid as well, is linked with Arsenal. The interesting mm. thing is, he is not linked with replacing Adu at Arsenal. He is linked with being a liaison who will sort of help Arsenal identify targets. I have some thoughts about this, and I'm I'm sort of struggling to know how big I should go on my thoughts about it, because the reporting on this is, is vague enough that I could go pretty big with my thoughts on it, and then it could all just prove to be paper talk. But... Let's let's treat it seriously, at least for the moment and get your initial thoughts on this possibility. And I can kind of use cues from, from how seriously you take it to decide how big I want to go.
2: <laughs> yeah, sure. So I think it kind of depends what um, Richard Garlick's role is, because I mean, so frankly, we got rid of. You know, Raul I'm San-
1: obligated to say that I think Dick Garlic stinks. <laughs> okay, anyway, go ahead. Sorry. I have no other choice. So- <laughs> I have to do it.
2: <laughs> because ultimately Arsenal got rid of Raul Sanyehi last summer and didn't replace him. So there's there's a gap there, and I'm not. I'm just not sure that Edu has ever been like the technical director guy. I I think. I mean. I mean, he kind of has in different environments, but I kind of think he's. The link more than anything like it's almost like um to use a football analogy like edu's a number nine na- a number eight and we're playing him as a number ten you know um when actually probably what we need him to do is be a bit more of an eight and have that that 10 so i'm I'm not like flying a flag for Sanyi here because um he's he's a bastard and I'm glad he's gone but like he he was clearly like the main player right in that relationship like edu was junior to Sanyi. Um, and, and therefore we kind of got rid of the senior member of that duo and didn't replace them. So, you know, I've said all season, I think that there's a piece missing there. I don't know whether um, old Dickie Garlic is that piece, um, but <laughs> I, like, I'm, I'm open to, to anyone that can help us with talent identification because I'm not sure that that's what Edu has ever really done. Um, and for like a national team, I mean, you kind of do have to do that for Brazil, to be fair, because it's a fucking enormous country and everyone plays football and loads mm. of people have got other passports. But it's different. Like, it's very different. Uh, it's Brazil's big, but it's not as big as the whole world. And I'm not sure that, that Edu has ever really done that talent ID piece, which is maybe why um, we've done some deals where, you know, through familiar agents and things like that. So I'm kind of open to it as to, you know, the idea of the permanence of the role. I mean, I guess I I wouldn't really understand why you wouldn't just hire the guy permanently unless it's um, like a cost cutting um, thing um, or an economic thing, which I presume is part of the reason. Because I expected when Sanehi was um, sorry, when Sanyehi decided to step down, um, just get that one past the lawyers. um, It's It's... (laughs) like i i thought great we're we're going to replace him that that was my kind of thought and then it it all just went very quiet and and again i you know i, I from what i hear richard garlic is much more about like contracts and things like that so so i i'm i'm looking at our and setup relationships and
3: like, with other with the pl and other because we yeah. needed to rebuild that as well because our boy Vinay has burned yeah. some bridges there.
2: So you yeah. could see the Richard Garlic role in kind of two areas, contracts definitely, and relations. Definitely. And and that's, you know, obviously that's a happy accident because um he was he was hired before that whole fandango. But yeah, definitely. Like we saw how useful it was to have David Dean at the club who sat on various committees and things like that. So so yeah, I'm looking at our setup and I'm thinking, well, where's the talent ID? Um, And if it's Lewis Campos, uh, great, but I I could only imagine that it wouldn't be like a permanent appointment either because he doesn't want that and he'd like to almost be like a a Ned, like a non-executive director style talent spotter. Just, yeah, I'll turn up like a couple of days a month, um, tell you what you're doing wrong, tell you what you should do right, and then I'll bugger off again. And maybe he'd like to do lots of these freelance, you know, like we all know that there's a lot of money in consultancy when you're good at things. Um,
1: Especially in the orbit of Arsenal fo- Football Club, the FC yeah. stands for full of consultants. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, and so yeah, may I don't know. Like assuming there's truth to it, maybe it's it's coming from him, and he'd he'd like to be a, like a freelance consultant for several clubs and get paid several times. Maybe it's just because Arsenal can't give him a full salary, and you know, kind of say, well, how do you, how do you fancy like a couple of days a month, um, or? better better still, why don't you just tell us the name of a load of talented players and um, we'll go after them.
1: I'm really, really torn on this. Not because he would be involved in what we do, because I inherently trust that he would be an improvement in our process. What worries me is that Arsenal Football Club does appear to be a place now where there are more people outside the club getting paid to fix us than the trust and faith being put in the people inside the club to fix us. Tim Lewis is... You know, a name that gets thrown around a lot like he'll he'll save us. Oh, he got rid of Raul. He he knows what's going on. He works for Clifford Chance. He's a non-executive director, a Ned, not a Ned Flanders. That's a different thing, although uh has a phenomenal physique, if you've ever seen Ned with the shirt off. Um the the fact of the matter is we have uh, Nolan Partners, they're an outside firm that we've hired to find us scouts, having just gotten rid of those guys. Uh now we want to hire Luis Campos to be a consultant to help Adu. And I just think when you look at companies that hire lots of consultants rather than relying on the full-time employees within the organization to do their job, that's not a great indication of the trust and confidence you have in the people whose job it is to do it. Rather than getting Luis Campos to be a consultant to help us because the only reason you do that is if you feel that Adu's not ready to do the job properly would be to hire someone to do the job properly and tell Adu we're sorry it's not working out and the reason you bring in a Tim Lewis is because you don't think I can do the job without his help so you demote I back to his old job and you hire someone to do the job properly same with the scouting situation i think the fact that we don't have full time employees in the club who are trusted enough to do their job in a way that will elevate the long-term success of the club so that we have to go out and pay these consultants. And the irony is we did a huge reduction in force during the pandemic, right? Why did we do it? Save money, cost cutting. You know, we sacked Gunnersaurus. The thing that I think blows my mind, we took money back from the players, a wage cut. How much money is now going out the door to consultants to do jobs of people who otherwise should be done by other that otherwise should be done by people inside the club. It's just a very, very weird way of operating. And maybe I'm naive. Maybe football clubs just inherently have more consultants in their orbit, work with more short-term consultants this way, and that what I'm saying is incredibly naive. So I want to admit that not being within the football business, I could be dead wrong about this. As someone who has been in business, this strikes me as an indicator of a lack of having the right kind of people, full-time, engaged to do it. You know, we had a stats company. That's kind of fallen apart, right? Jason Rosenfeld's gone. Uh we all know Sven gone. Raul, I think thankfully gone. But as these pieces have gone, they haven't really been replaced by people that do what they do. And now instead of full time replacing them or properly replacing them, we're just sort of getting mercenaries to kind of patch things up and keep the ship flowing in hopefully the right direction rather than sinking altogether. So Paul, while I am thrilled to have a name like Luis Campos associated with what we're doing. And I will always take someone good helping us rather than not having someone good helping us. Do you share any of my concerns? And I can probably answer that with a one word 2 better uh, uh, answer. But do you share any of my concerns that these are indicators that perhaps the people who are full time employed to do this stuff aren't necessarily uh, trusted to do it properly? We're doomed. i <laughs> That's not Ned, um, though. That's uh, that's groundskeeper Willie.
3: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, look, there's two schools of thought, possibly three. Um, let me take a different slant uh, because I think, like what you said, I think is basically right. But I guess I'd say, but a lot of that isn't new news, and we're at where we're at. So, like, given where we're at, um, it I could see. Like, I, I'm not sure I believe this Luis Campos stuff, but I, I I could get a logic for why we want to bring this guy in as a consultant, having been in business and seen a few different things along the way, a few different configurations. And like we like if you're the, the cronkies and you're not comfortable that you you think you have good people, but not good enough, or you might have good people or maybe they're OK and they're on the way to getting better. Like. I get the Tim Lewis thing. I don't think that's necessarily a re- reflection of Vinay. That's more a reflection of they need somebody on the board in London while they're in the U.S., their eyes and ears that they don't employ specifically to do a day-to-day, week-to-week job. Somebody to get the give them the temperature of how things are going. So that one I get. Um, Luis Campos. Well, they're probably not in a position right now to shake everything up because the summer is coming. Edu's on the job. We've got people to sign. He has a relationship with Arteta. They don't want to tear everything up. But what they could do is slide Luis Campos in and above, as we've talked about before in terms of bringing in a, 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 a Rangnick or somebody like that, somebody with a different perspective and an overview, contacts relationships bring him in on a basis that's flexible for him and us, get to know each other. I've seen this done. I've seen like the big guys in business do this. They bring in the guy. They see if it's a fit for him, for us. He gives a bit of guidance. People kind of, you know, Edu gets an idea of how this guy can actually help him rather than hurt him. Uh, Luis Campos gets a feeling for other clubs uh, club. Remember uh, what was the name of the Manchi, who Mm -hmm. almost joined us and then went running in the opposite direction. It's kind of a, you don't force it. Like you don't get married on the first date. Sometimes you date Mm -hmm. and given where we're at, they may have looked at things and said, okay, we we don't feel things are going in the right direction at the moment. uh, We need to hire some scouts now that we've fired them and we need to do that quickly We've got bandwidth issues. We saw that last summer. Now, partly it was because of the summer, but partly it's because we we fired Raul and a bunch of other people and everything was in turmoil. And my big concern, I think I said a few times some time ago, was bandwidth. So you bring in Luis Campos and his network of people that he knows and you supplement what you've got. And along the way, people begin to work out who 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 does what in a new configuration, and maybe you end up with a permanent position in the future where he's a a czar of football, and you make a decision on Edu one way or another. Can these guys work together? Um, Yes, okay, we'll call him director of football as he is, and we'll have effectively... Luis Campos kind of running the overall football thing. And over a year or two, it sorts itself out. Maybe Edu goes and does something different and it's a transitional thing. But when you think how much money we spend on players, the idea we might have an extra salary or we might be paying a consultant to supplement who we know, how we can get things done, kind of the the Rolodex of who's who and who the agents are and how to deal with them. Uh, I'm not I' tell you it's I agree with you, it's not necessarily a pH indicator of us having all the expertise we need in-house, but we already knew that. So the fact that the club would be reacting and getting um, one of the top guys in as an external slash potential, you know uh, po- easing its way to a position, a reconfiguration in the future, I could live with all of that. Um, and ext- increase and extend our bandwidth. Now, I think we'll find out it's probably not true because most rumors aren't true, but it may have some legs to it in that maybe they're talking to several people. They're talking to the the uh, Munchies, Rangnicks, uh, Campos of this world. And maybe we will find out that we've got somebody in th- in a month or so to help supplement our activities and uh, provide a level of expertise that neither Vinai or Edu have. I mean, we know that, right? We're not, mm-hmm. it, it, your, your, your points are well made, but we knew that. So I'm not, I'm not down on us adding some expertise, but yes, it, it shines a mirror on the fact that we don't have it yeah. internally.
1: There, there may be something a bit churlish about being upset, upset about someone good and knowledgeable and helpful coming in to improve the situation.
3: We definitely I, don't want that.
1: I, yeah. I can't, can't have that. I, I want to be clear, I'm not unhappy about this if it comes to pass. I think it is a bit of an indicator, though, of a problem, right? Because you wouldn't we see that happening at Dortmund, right? You wouldn't see that happening at Liverpool. You wouldn't see that happening at Leicester or Brentford or any of these clubs that we regard as sort of having their process and having their people in place and kind of knowing how they want things to go um, because those people work for the club, presumably, and I could have that wrong as well. As I said, I, I am speaking from a position of how I look at business generally and some businesses I've interacted with and the ones that you know have really good people in-house who solve problems and the ones that need to use outside consultants to solve problems for them. And you know, I also look at the, the sort of hypocritical quality of reducing your workforce and cutting the salary of your players and then putting a lot of money into outside consultants to <laughs> fix what's wrong. It, it all feels a little bit, off to me but again from a purely selfish standpoint if it means we do things better then we do things better and that's great we can move on from that but tim just do you have any reaction to that react to my reaction or paul's reaction in terms of (laughs) it indicating a
3: meta reaction yeah a better
1: (laughs) reaction as as you might say just in terms not in terms of whether it'd be good or bad for the club but if it indicates anything to you that might be a bit troublesome in that respect
2: yeah, I mean, I've worked in the public sector, so um, <laughs> I know I know all about um, cost-cutting and then getting consultants in. Mm. Um, joke, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I guess my kind of worry, and it's a superficial one, really, is that, um, is that we're doing this kind of, I think they call it guru thinking. Um, of just like, oh, Monchi, yes, he's the name everyone's talking about. Let's get him. Oh, fuck, we can't get him. Um, let's get Edu. He played for the Invincibles. Yes, let's get him. Mm. and uh, Raul Sanyehi, yeah, he was a Barca, brilliant, we'll bring him in and then uh, Luis Campos, oh yeah, everyone's talking about him, we'll bring him in, do you know what I mean, like, um, I don't know a consultant bastard But, but do you know what I mean? It's, yeah, it does course. feel like a, a kind of like a, a who's Thrashing who if we just get that guy. Yeah. Yeah. A, a bit like, and uh, well, I, I know we might get onto them later in the podcast if time permits, but a bit like Everton, you know, when they got Steve Walsh from Leicester and they just went, yes, if we get the guy from Leicester, we will become Leicester. And then they had to sack him a year later.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, definitely. that, that's kind of my worry. I, I guess I don't. I don't see the strategic thinking, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's not there, I guess.
1: Yeah.
3: Oh, I, I
2: guess why. Well, I, I, can I say we're going to do I more of this the thing we? is, <laughs> um, I just feel like I'm
3: pre worried. Like, like you're both saying about how it worries you but i'm already worried so it's like does this make me i get what
1: you mean we already knew things were not good so what do you this doesn't (laughs)
3: tell me i didn't like this isn't a new i already have a really good mirror shine like we're we're not very good and we don't have great people and they do need help and i could imagine it's kind of challenging just to drop somebody in the middle of it you know i'm not i'm not more worried than i was uh, um, it it has elements of hope and optimism to it that we might be less shit. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's tough, right? Because there's nothing more on brand for me than looking at us doing something that could make us better and being like, here are the reasons it's terrible. Imagine um,
3: we didn't do anything as uh, as a saying. Imagine, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess taking taking a half measure to get better is an improvement overtake, no, no measures at all. Yeah. So, all right, well, look, we'll see how it shakes out. And I, I think ultimately having people who are smart and know what they're doing associated with the club and helping the club is a good thing. Uh, you know, Tim Lewis did eventually figure out that Raul was a problem and got rid of him. At least that's how it's been presented. And, you know, maybe Nolan partners will find us some great scouts and maybe Luis Campos will impart some wisdom onto the team that we have that helps them gain experience and figure out what they're doing. So, I mean, it, it is, it is potentially a move in the right direction in terms of what it indicates, from a club process and structure standpoint, will remain to be seen because we may have just put all that time into a thing that not only isn't happening, but was never happening and was completely fabricated. So who knows? Not fabricated, but, you know, rumor mill stuff. Um, let, so let's stay with the rumor mill. We might as well. Tim, On- Onana is a goalkeeper. Yeah. And I got to got Loads admit, of
2: song potential.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you got you to gotta like the the opportunity to, to put that one into a song, <laughs> certainly. Um, yeah, yeah. But he does- have a bit of an issue uh depending on how you who you want to believe with either intentionally taking substances he's not supposed to or accidentally taking his wife's substances or whatever whatever story you want to believe he's banned uh and he they would not be able to play like for us. aspirin yeah yeah it looked like aspirin i mean that that that's what i Especially, look, I was at the nightclub. It was two in the morning. The music was great. I had a bit of a headache. I thought the little (laughs) pill they were handing me was was you know acetaminophen and was just going to get rid of my headache. And then I just danced till seven a.m. It just felt great. Um, So yeah, this is a player who, and it's interesting because I think seven a.m. kickoff tweeted that like getting a guy who is banned for PEDs and can't play for you is either a stroke of genius or a fever yeah. dream of madness, but it's nothing in between. You, you know, it was yeah. something, something to that extent. It is it is interesting. The, the Leno situation has suddenly become one that has to be discussed. So I'll start with your thoughts on us targeting a player who potentially would be banned all the way through the African Cup of Nations and wouldn't even necessarily be eligible for us until, you know, let's say February at the earliest.
2: Yeah, I, I I completely agree with Tim. Though it is either like it's either really smart or really stupid, mm. and and because of the way we feel about Arsenal at the moment, we're more inclined to say, "Well, that's really stupid." I'm I'm actually kind of on the side where I think this might be really smart. Just because um, he's a pretty good goalkeeper, from what I understand. I don't know that much about him, so I can't say firmly, this guy's brilliant, this is great. But from what I understand, he's he's a pretty decent goalkeeper. He's going to be available for peanuts. Yep, Uh, I
3: hear he's terrible when he isn't taking the PEDs is the problem. Oh, yeah.
1: When he's (laughs) off the PEDs, he's he's, he's like me. It's terrible.
2: Um, But... And and so it might be a really ingenious way of getting a really good goalkeeper in at cut price and maybe just kicking the Kent Leno can down the road because all right, we'd probably we'd lose some value on then on Leno compared to selling him this summer, but you'd already have your goalkeeper in and all right, you wouldn't be able to train potentially until February, but then you've got February till August um to get him ready. And then you kind of kick the Leno can down the road till next summer. And Leno, he won't be as valuable, but will still retain some value. He'll be 30, I think, which for a goalkeeper is kind of coming into prime age. He's still a German international. Um, He won't want to sit on his contract line. He's the third choice goalkeeper for Germany. So he's hanging on to his place in the squad. He will not want to sit out the last year of his deal like I think this is one of those where there would be, there would definitely be a deal to do for Leno next summer, and probably not a bad one. And so, there, there is. I, I reserve the right to lose my shit about this if we do it and it turns out to be stupid. Um, but I am kind of thinking this is actually quite a creative solution to a problem that is perhaps not totally urgent at the moment, but will be urgent next summer. And if we can do something about it this summer, um, by I guess kind of it's kind of a halfway house between sticking it on the tab for next summer, but actually it's kind of already sorted. A bit like I guess when Liverpool got Nabi Cater. And they got him. They just bought him a year early, and and couldn't have him for a year. Like, and and I know there's a distinction here because Anana wouldn't be playing. But, um, I am actually leaning on the side that I think this might be quite an astute move. But I'm happy for someone to tell me that I'm crazy for thinking that.
1: No, I, I think you could. I mean, look, Leno's not going anywhere this summer. I can't imagine. I mean, if he was, then then you'd say it. It leaves us needing another goalkeeper. Um. But assuming Leno isn't going yet, um, it's not a problem, as you said, that has to be solved immediately, but it's one that has to be solved for the future, and we could be getting him at a super, super discounted rate um, with, obviously, some question marks. I think, let's face it, I think one of the reasons people are concerned about this, beyond the PEDs, which is a sentence I didn't expect to utter, is the Inaki Kana. Is that how you pronounce his name? In Inaki Kana? I'm going yeah, with Nyaki. because uh, yeah. don't they have
3: that thing over the end?
1: You know, I mean... Yeah.
3: Gotta do something.
1: So, but the thing is, you know, he's, he's the guy who found us, Runnerson. And I don't know if you know this, but it turns out that guy isn't good at the football. And here's my only thing about that. Like, that is a huge black mark, and that is a reason not to trust someone. But I do think we tend to go overboard with this. Person X identified player Y, and player Y wasn't good. So every player person X identifies is not good. No one in the history of scouting or player recommendations has ever been right all the time, right? I mean, everyone wanted to dismiss, oh, stats DNA are terrible. They, they found Mustafi. Like, all right, but, you know, they also found other things. We don't know what data they had. Like, the reality is just because you have a black mark on your CV as, as a talent identifier doesn't mean everyone you identify is bad. Um, I mean, I Ra- so. Raul was bad he found us some really, really good gems, or at least was around when they came. Yeah, sorry, Tim. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say, and also we don't know how hard uh, g- uh, can you, um really advocate. Like, we don't know if was like, we must get this guy. He's great. I've worked with him before. He's brilliant. Or whether it was, um, guys, we need like a second or third choose- choice goalkeeper pretty quickly. And he kind of went, mm, well, I know this guy. I've got his number. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like there's advocating and then there's, well, another guy, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, you're
3: His right. His nickname it, is Shitter Shitterson, but I think that's ironic.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, it, it is what it is. I, I think the fact of the matter is that that link is something that's leading people to be concerned about it combined with the PED thing. Um, yeah, it's, but if he's really, really good and we get a really good deal for him and we don't need him right away anyway, then I, I I'm open to this being a bit of a stroke of genius. But I guess my thing with you, Paul, not with you, for you, with him, with this. Anyway, it could be both. Um, mm. the The Leno thing is interesting because just last mm-hmm. summer we made the choice to stick with him and move on Martinez. Now that may not have been a choice; we may not have had an alternative to do it the other way around. But we did that. We committed to Leno, you know, who said, "I, you know, I'm the first team keeper at Arsenal." And sure enough, he was. I think he's been pretty good. I don't think he's elite, but he's certainly not a problem at Arsenal. But he certainly doesn't seem like he wants to stay. And I, I just wonder, is this something we could have maybe divined from him last summer and made a different decision about? I mean, how do you feel about the fact that the Leno situation has suddenly become so murky so quickly?
3: Yeah, and I mean we were the there is a consistency here in that we were looking at David Rea last season. Um isn't he Brentford? Mm. Wasn't he the keeper at Brentford? Yes. Um, so like, this is kind of, uh, he hasn't had a great season apparently. Um, but this w- kind of fits into that mold where it wasn't, didn't sound like we were going to get rid of Leno last year. Uh, we were going to have to sell a keeper either way. So it was going to be Martinez cause he was the guy who was willing to go. Um, so this just seems like a continuation of last year. So it doesn't, it's almost like the Martinez thing staying or going, was never going to change the fact that we were looking for a particular, maybe a particular type or style of keeper, maybe somebody who plays a lot more with their feet, more comfortable. Um, it's interesting that Leno dialed back the speculation that he might leave this summer. He, he poured quite a bit of cold water on what you know how happy he was, where he was, and he basically said he was happy and he's here and he's got a contract, and it made it sound like he wasn't going anywhere. I think this might just be good planning from Arsenal's standpoint. They know Leno's the man right now. Maybe they have an understanding with Leno to a degree. Maybe not kind of in blood, but kind of. Leno might want to go back to Germany at some point. I got to stop you, Paul. Yeah,
1: are are they still doing agreements in blood with some of these players?
3: Yeah, yeah, Ooh. they are. So, um, that was part of the reason they had to get rid of Raul. Mm, he was yeah. insisting blood. Yeah, too, mu- too much blood. <laughs> You'll remember the people were confused about getting rid of uh, Husfami. Was well, the name? now, wait a minute. Yeah. Now they
1: think about it, yeah. there were some people that had the nickname Dracula for Emery. So, yep. you know. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole thing. I'm just there saying was a 2 cabal. plus 2 could be 22. That's all I'm saying. The cabal of them.
3: <laughs> yeah. Um, so... Like, there's a consistency here. They want a guy who can play with his feet. Um, it would be happy to wait a year, maybe, and this guy looks good for that. And like the thing about Leno was, it seemed to me he got pretty good with his feet uh, earlier in the season when we kind of committed to this playing out from the back all the time. And then as the season went on, we didn't do it all the time. We kind of did it on and off, and he looked a little bit more intermittent. It almost felt like him and the team... Like, none of them are perfect for playing out from the back, but we're committed to it. Um, and it seemed like when everybody knew we were going to do it all the time, okay, the opposition knew, it, but we knew it too. It's kind of like, you know, like kamikaze pilots um, was a particularly successful technique where they'd weld the, the pilot into the plane. And like nothing blew up a ship better than a an aircraft, not the bombs it dropped. So like there was a commitment to your process. The pilot knew what was going to happen. And it were like it has a pejorative term these days as a crazy thing to do, but it was actually really, really effective. And that we kind of had this kamikaze approach earlier in the year, but the good kind of kamikaze, where everybody knew we were going to do it. It was a hundred percent commitment, there was no bottling it. And I thought Leno was pretty good with his feet and getting better with his distribution. And then as we mixed it up a bit, maybe we will, maybe we won't, kind of the questions, the nerves came into it. And I guess uh, I was a little disappointed, like because uh, I had hopes that he might actually make the jump. But I guess you either have it or you don't. I think he's been okay and fairly good and his distribution's been reasonable. But you can see the logic for a more a more ball-playing um, a- aggressive style with uh, passing from the back, so kind of makes sense.
1: Yeah. yeah, look, I think we are inclined, for reasons that I would not fault anybody for, to view a lot of Arsenal moves cynically. And to be fair, Arsenal makes a lot of moves that look a little bit different, a little bit head-scratching to what we see done at other clubs, especially clubs that we tend to rate a little more highly on the intelligence spectrum in terms of the way they're run, but I don't think that means that we only do bad moves. We certainly don't only do bad moves. We've done some good moves. Um, and this this could wind up being one, could wind up being smart. I, I think the Leno situation is a shame because, you know, look, let's face it. There's a lot to be done this summer by a relatively inexperienced group of people. And adding first choice goalkeeper to the list would be, would be a negative. It would be a thing they don't need. Mm-hmm. There is some positive stuff. Um, new contracts being hammered out. Smith Rowe, they're trying to get a contract for him. Uh, kiddo Taylor Hart. Did I say that right?
3: Is Sounds that, right to me. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, Working on a contract from the, the, the club announced players who are He's good. Who, yeah. Good. Yeah. A lot of people pretty excited about him and, and they, they announced their list of first team players and Academy players who are not being offered new contracts and are out of contracts. So, Yep, that's one of them. So anyway, I just uh that's one of them that's not. So I I think that there are some good things happening. I guess I'll ask you just real quick, Tim. I mean, the news about Smith rowe getting a new contract, Kiddo Taylor Hart, someone they're negotiating with, at least looks like we're trying to get ahead of anything potentially worrying happening there.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Although um I know Kiddo Taylor Hart is kind of stalling a little bit because of the loss of um the loss of the Europa League. Um, takes away a clear pathway because the Europa League is the Europa League group stages have become what the the League Cup used to be under Arsene Wenger and all of the young players we've brought through, um, you know, owe a debt adept to that competition and without it, it's kind of difficult for for players like that. But um, but yeah, absolutely, we should be getting ahead of that stuff. And also, it made sense not to negotiate with Smith Rowe before now as well. I mean, he's got two years left, and this is the point that. Um, that you do it but also obviously there were big question marks over his actual fitness and things like that which he hasn't entirely dispelled but has dispelled enough um, certainly to get a new deal so um, yeah so it, it it, that is definitely um, a positive and not least because the academy has been good to us. It's it's one of the few things we've actually been good at mining as well in the last few years, as badly as we've been run, we've done well to get um, these young players through. Like we're doing something right there and um, that, that will have to continue to be um, a part, a part of our future, um, a part yeah. of our medium term future.
1: Yeah. Well said. Um, Well, look, if there is one thing that is putting a smile on our face right now, it is the Academy. Another thing that could put a smile on your face is just liking your smile more. Yeah. If you liked your smile more, maybe you would smile more. And we haven't had a lot of reason to smile as Arsenal fans or just as uh, human beings on planet Earth. But that is changing, hopefully for Arsenal fans and, and for planet Earth. You know, both of those things matter. Uh, and one way to uh, then usher in this new good feeling would be to, to love your smile. And if you'd like to uh, work on that, Candid is here to help. They are a uh, teeth aligner company. And uh, really, I, I think a couple of things that make them unique. Some things that, for me, I think add that trust factor and make them a company that's worth working with. So a few things here. First of all, the aligners are invisible. You wear them. Nobody knows you're wearing them. They're not like metal braces or anything like that. They can work in as little as six months. So you just put these things in. You wear them. No one knows they're in. Six months later, teeth turn, teeth and gaps closed. It's great. But it is that they are prescribed and monitored by an orthodontist that I really like because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you could get the aligners and you want them to work, but the best way to know that they're going to work is if the person prescribing the treatment and making sure they're designed properly is in the orthodontist business, right, is is an actual licensed orthodontist, and that's what they do. It's the same quality of care you would get from an in-office orthodontist from the comfort of your home, convenience of your home, without having to go in for all of those appointments, without having to spend tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, There's another company that I was offered um, alignment services for years back. And it was going to be like, I, I want to say like $16,000. Then they were like, oh, but it's discounted this month down to ten grand. This is thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands less. So if you do want to straighten your teeth, if you do have a turn tooth, gaps, things like that, and you want to have a straighter smile, have more aligned teeth, Candid could be the right choice for you. Uh, you work with the same orthodontist start to finish which is great. So you get the same plan from the start to the finish. The average Candid treatment is just six months. That's it. And you'll start seeing results way before that. And it costs thousands less than traditional base braces. Um, Sharon in Pittsburgh said, I wore braces as a teenager. Flash forward 30 years. I had crowding on the bottom and one of my teeth actually stuck out. It's when I made the decision to move forward with Candid and it worked perfectly for me. So, you know, just a, a solution if you're looking for that. You can go to CandidCo, CandidCO.com, CandidCo.com slash vision. And use code vision. That's candidco.com slash vision. Code vision. Candidco, C O, candidco.com slash vision, code vision. Tim, is that enough of that? Indeed, yes. Okay. We don't have Clive here to say it's enough <laughs> of that or anything like that, but um, you know, that's okay. That's okay. We can know when it is enough of that. He's not the only person who can make that determination. Paul, let's get into the Schadenfreude portion of this for a second. Carlo Ancelotti, we hardly knew you. Um, he is leaving Everton. I'm going to ask you a challenging question. Is mm. that actually a good thing or a bad thing for <clears throat> Everton?
3: Uh, I guess it depends on what comes next. I mean, the interesting thing about Carlo and Arteta was they were appointed at the same time. And because of that, there's, there's always been the optics of who's doing better and like they're almost the personifications of the choices right a, an experienced manager who will work with what he's got and find a kind of common sense approach versus arteta a risk a gamble uh, a high ceiling but also a low low floor it could all go tits up on us um <clears throat> a system coach a philosophy coach Uh, etc and uh, carlo early in his career was a bit more of a philosophy coach and along the way he learned you you do what works for you and you do what works for your players and you know here we are at the end of the at the the end of this season and i guess depending on your biases you could say it was kind of a draw or one did a little better than the other or whatever but here we are so carlo's I guess getting the big call to Real Madrid. So apparently they loved the job he did. Um, and what happens next for for uh, Everton? I think at, the bigger issue with Everton is that they may just keep spending money on players. And I guess changing managers always has the potential that you have a slight change in direction. They could, buy, they could have been buying better players anyway. Maybe they'll. Uh, you know maybe this chopping and changing will mean squad confusion uh, purchases across purposes in terms of style so i like the fact that things have changed and uh, you know carlo is a good manager let's be honest he may not i don't know if he's done brilliantly or great or just okay but he's good and consistency i like the fact that they're chopping and changing and it's one of my arguments against us doing anything radical But I guess if they bring in some superstar, if Pochettino or Conte go there, uh, then maybe we'll see. We'll have a different feeling about it. But it still feels like they're... uh, Over the next few years, we're going to see more and more threats coming up, more and more. You know, it's not going to stop people buying clubs. But Everton have been bought. They have big money behind them. They're just going to keep coming for years on end and getting stronger is my suspicion. So they'll probably come with an even more exciting manager pick next time around.
1: Yeah. I I mean, Tim Everton finished 10th on minus one goal difference. They (laughs) scored, you know, 47 goals and conceded 48 with 51 expected conceded. Um, They, they ran a little bit hot on XG for a while, but it caught up with them. I mean, I look at this and I say he's a big name but he's at the tail end of his career he's always sort of been an ego whisperer that's seems kind of like the thing he's he's good at I don't know that he's tactically particularly special when I watched Everton they were dreadful I mean I yeah. I I admit the eye test is not always the best but I I watched Everton down the stretch and thought this is a dead team walking and they Seems like
3: when DCL was good they were good
1: Yeah but I mean that that they didn't they didn't have much of a plan besides put it in the box and and let him do something in the air for it. I, I don't know. I, I also think that there there are managers out there. This isn't the case of losing Ancelotti, and, and there's no one who could come in and do better than he would. So uh, while it's kind of funny seeing him ripped away from them right away, uh, I mean, do you, do you suspect that they may actually wind up with someone that, that can elevate their level?
2: So I, I agree with what Paul said, and it kind of, Depends on what happens next for them. I don't think Ancelotti's a loss to them at all. I think he's he's come in. Uh, I'm I'm I mean I'm not that invested in. It. I'm I'm glad they finished tenth because I think that's where they deserve to finish and they were higher than that for quite a bit of the season. And just look, <clears throat> excuse me, just look at the list of teams they lost to at home. They lost to like most of the bottom half at home. That was their big problem this season. They they were a counter-attacking team and they couldn't they couldn't put teams under pressure um, and take the game to teams. And that's um I, I guess I guess what it's made me reflect on is I kind of wanted Ancelotti to replace Wenger, but not I didn't want him this time round. Um to be honest and and actually. Come to think of it, I'm I'm kind of glad we didn't. And that's not so, well, maybe it is a little bit on the base of the job he did at Everton and that I don't think Ancelotti is the guy you want to give a rebuild to. I think Ancelotti, like, I, I think he'll probably be okay at Madrid, to be honest. He's been there before. He knows the deal. Um, He knows that he's not going to get a say in buying any of the players or anything like that. And he'll just cobble something together. I mean, what I think he's done at Everton is basically saddled them with a load of 29-year-olds who on big money, but they're not going to be able to shift. They bought Decore, you know, not a bad signing. Uh, Alan, who's 29. James, who's 29, always struck me as a potentially disastrous signing just because, I mean, a l is a little bit like Ancelotti himself in that you don't really want to sign guys who are, you know, maybe very talented, but definitely on the way down. James has been left out of Colombia's Copper America squad because he's not fit enough um they've said that he's not in a condition to play which Mm. is which is absolutely unreal by the way yeah (laughs) Um, yeah for like a a really world-class player who has been who's been their captain and been the centerpiece of their team to say you're just not fit enough to play in this and South American football is not the intensity of (laughs) Premier League (laughs) League football and so like and so Ancelotti's allowed that that um, kind of situation to develop as well. I think this is good for Everton in that they don't have to sack him. Um, so it doesn't it doesn't cost them any money because I think that's where it had gone eventually. It had just gone to a place where they had gone, oh God, this isn't actually going anywhere, um, but it's going to cost a load of money to sack him. Um, but then again with Everton, I mean, you can tell Mashiri was involved with Arsenal because Everton look as stupid as Arsenal to me. <laughs> um, they just like... I mean, they just keep lurching from plan to plan, from manager to manager, um, you know, yeah, let's just buy like another load of 29 year olds again. And they don't seem to really have any sort of plan. I think they really thought they could just throw money at it. Um, and now the the, the kind of um, there are well-placed reports saying they're going to try and prize David Moyes away from Everton, uh, away from West Ham, sorry. And so they are a club. So I think, in one respect, like getting rid of Ancelotti, I don't think that's that's any sort of loss for them, really. But the managerial market for a club like Everton doesn't look great at the moment. As indeed, I don't think it would look great for Arsenal either, even if we're a bigger pool than Everton. Um, and so what they do next is kind of intriguing. I I tend to think they'll do something just quite similar and, and just keep lurching, to be honest. So as much as I think it's kind of a net positive for them, I don't think it's, I don't have the feeling that it's one they'll really capitalize on.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you look at how they performed down the stretch and they just looked like they couldn't care less. Um, they lost a lot of games. They drew a lot of games badly. The underlying metrics looked, Pretty terrible. Yeah, I don't I don't know that they're going to be regretting that one too much. But, Tim, I'll stay with you for a second. The other news, I think, is harder for me to paint as a positive. That is Antonio Conte to Spurs. Mm. I was really, really hoping we were going to get the Scotty Parker Spurs experience. Um yeah. I, I love a sweater vest on a Spurs coach, and I think it would have been great. But, like, I don't know what's going to happen now, and and if that will come to pass, I, I strongly doubt it. I, I just can't see that they will match his expectations in terms of spending. I mean, he's, he's no. sort of in that pep mold, in my view, of a guy who's like, well, if you spend all the money and give me all the best players, I will come in and guide them to a title.
0: Mm. But,
1: I mean, how much veracity do you give this rumor, and how much concern would it cause you if it happened?
2: Yeah, I mean, veracity, definitely. Like, all the well-placed Tottenham guys are, are reporting it. Um, so And and they'd kind of be silly not to go for him, really. I mean, if you're in the market for a manager at the moment... And uh-huh, Real Madrid- if
1: you're in the market for a manager.
2: <laughs> well, yeah. And Real Madrid have, have already made their bed, and, and partly because um, they're broke and probably probably can't really afford Conte or um, his demands um, at the moment. Um, I, I was kind of all right with the idea of Pochettino going back there because I, ju- I just think it's one of those things where... You, you don't go back like that. I just don't think it would have worked and it was going sour towards the end anyway. I know there are differences in that they kind of shut the wallet on Pochettino um, just before he went and now maybe they'd say, well, actually, we're going to let you rebuild this team now. We didn't let you do that last time. Um, but, but Conte... I mean, the thing is, I don't think like Conte will win them the title or anything because I I don't think, like realistically, I think it's, you know, Chelsea, Man City, Liverpool and probably even United, although I think they're definitely the most vulnerable of the four. I kind of think the top four is a bit of a lock in next year. Um, I do think that with Conte, Tottenham would probably overtake Leicester and regrettably, um, I, I think. You know, I think us finishing above them would become less likely as well. And, you know, if you're looking at us getting in like the top six next season, that's, you know, that's potentially a problem. I do think I I think wherever Conte goes, it ends in tears. It always does. It's just a case of what he wins you before he gets to that point. Um, And for Spurs, I don't think he's like going to win them the league or anything, but whether he can maybe get them into the top four or maybe win them a trophy or something like that. I could see that happening before, inevitably, after a year to 18 months, he'd fall out with Levy because he'd want to buy loads of 31-year-olds for lots of money and Levy would say no. Like, I, I think it's like it's doomed for failure. After, well, it, it's doomed to end badly after a couple of years. But um, I do think he could make them competitive relative to their ceiling in that time. And yes, that would worry me.
1: Yeah, well, um, I have a strong suspicion that whatever Spurs do, whether it is this or something else, they'll wind up Spursing it up. I, I know that's... that's what, like How can that be true? But it just feels like it's always true. I don't, I think they'll lose Kane or, or, or probably worse for them. They'll keep Kane, not cash in. His ankles will be a problem coming off a Euro tournament in the summer. Like I, I I don't see them getting this right for some reason. And, and maybe that's just the optimism in me that I'm known for the brand. But Paul, are you worried? I can't. Like I feel like if they get Conte, it'll be an awful fit. It won't work. He'll want things they can't give. They'll get into a battle. It'll be Jose all over again. If they don't get him, Scotty Parker is still a possibility. I don't know. I just I see Spurs screwing it up. How about you?
3: Um, I am a bit worried uh, the fact that it's Matt Law. You guys worry who's... too
1: much. You got to be like me and just chill.
3: I know. I know. Um, you know, Matt Law is very in the Spurs mix. Um, and he's pretty strong on this kind of coming to a head, coming to a conclusion. So, A, I'm worried that it will happen. My my betting on this one is this happens and Luis Campos does not happen. Um, and I think it's bad because he's good. And uh, for the reasons Tim said, uh, I mean, it's, re- you know, they're probably not going to win the league, but that's only a probably I mean what a fucking nightmare that would be. Let's um, not so, let's
1: not breathe that into existence, okay? Thanks. No, no.
3: <laughs> so let's you know the what we have here is a very capable manager who who could I agree with Tim, I'd much prefer Pochettino go there than than Conte because it is hard to go back and the fault lines are there and the the griev- grievances and the grudges um, and it's like the, the the new car smell is well gone with Pochettino and Levy and that crowd, but Conte uh, might be back with a point to prove in in London. And uh, Levy, I assume, is not bringing him back without knowing that he is going to need to spend money. And a manager might that like that might give him the confidence to spend a little extra money while you have that that caliber a manager around. So. I don't like it and I hope it doesn't happen. And, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well said. All right. Um, I, I'm fine with it. I think whatever happens there, it's going to go tits up for them. I just really have a feeling that they are, they're in, in the shit. I don't know why. Um, maybe it's because now that we live in this h- horrific glass house, I know exactly what they look like. So when I throw stones from it, I know, I know exactly what a glass house looks like to throw the stone from. I don't know. Make sense of that if you can. Um, let's finish up with this just real quick. Tim, one of the clubs coming up is Brentford. And I mm-hmm. think it's a fascinating story. And it is a story of a club that took a very specific approach, the kind of approach that obviously gets a lot of love on this podcast and, and to the annoyance of some people I know, but one that we might associate as being very much like an, an LFC or a Liverpool approach, one that you know really looks like Moneyball, right? that That's the word mm-hmm. that's been... Uh, um, associated with. It. The club was bought by a guy who was a professional gambler. Um, a data expert did you know, analytics modeling. And what they really tried to do was change the the KPIs, the key performance indicators that they used to establish success. Right? Um, and they got rid of the wins and losses. I mean, look, I know that's how it's reported. No one stops caring about wins and losses. But they looked at underlying metrics. They looked at places where they could be efficient. One of the quotes from a Joe Pompliano uh, Twitter thread about Brentford that really stuck out. He said that they look more at expected goals rather than player goals and things like that, actual goals. And their theory is interesting. This is a way I wish I could have said it this succinctly and this accurately. In a low-scoring sport that is skewed by randomness and luck, the quality and quantity of chances created during a match matters more. And I love that, that way of putting it because if you think about it, the average football match ends with one goal scored or maybe two, right? Even if it's mm-hmm. three. a, a sh, You know, a shinned shot that goes in, a, a deflected shot that goes in, uh, a guy slips and it's a tap-in, that happens three times in a season. And statistics look totally different. And if you look at the underlying metrics that talk about the quality and quantity of chances you created, you don't have your analysis skewed by three or four mishit kicks that fly into the net or, you know, a defender that fell on his ass. You know, if Mustafi's defending you, you're going to look a lot better, right? So um, I think that that's really interesting. But their approach in general, I think there is an interesting debate to be had when you're in the fourth division, as they were. To come up to the Premier League is amazing. But every time you come up, it gets a little harder because the margins get smaller. The areas we can exploit inefficiencies tighten up. At the Premier League level, do you think this kind of model, this pure moneyball analytics model, do you think it it can be used by Brentford in the same way at this level that it was previously or that there is eventually a ceiling on the the way you can exploit these inefficiencies?
2: I think it absolutely can, yeah. And and look, no no one's saying that Brentford will win the league or, or anything like that. I think what it does is it will help you go to your ceiling, maybe even higher. Um, than that whatever that is so you'd look at the Brentford squad at the moment and you'd say "Mm, they're going to fight relegation but I I wouldn't be surprised if they don't if they do something more similar to what Leeds have done this year Um, uh, maybe not quite because what were Leeds ninth? but you know like I I could see them kind of upper mid table uh, maybe on the edges of the the relegation battle I mean I I don't really know yet but do you know what I mean like the what I think it does is it it gets you it probably gets you to your ceiling. And um what's what's really interesting about all of this, I'd love to see an example of a club who has an approach like this and it doesn't work. Because I kept thinking to myself, like I keep looking at Brentford and I keep thinking, isn't it funny how all the guys that do this seem to succeed at it? And then I think to myself, Well, actually are we just hearing about the success stories? But then like you you've always got a comeback there right because if you use data and things like that you can still use it badly Um, and therefore you can have a data-led approach but if you don't do it well then you know like data by itself is not going to save you it's about how you interpret it Um, but like there are some there are some really good examples actually of teams that do this and um, Sam Allardyce is a coach who made a lot of his early career um, certainly at clubs like Blackpool and Bolton by exploiting some of those margins. And he was really influenced by, he spent a year or two at the end of his career in the U S mm-hmm. uh, I think the Tampa Bay Rowdies or something. And, uh, in the kind of early 80s, early to mid eighties. And he was like, he walked in one day and he's like, who are all these guys? And they're like, that, that's the staff. <laughs> he
0: was like, "Whoa! Like,
2: what's going on here?" He's like, I, "All we've ever had is like the manager, the assistant manager, and like a guy with a bucket of water and a sponge." That's like all all I've ever seen, and he was really influenced by that approach. That they had this like, you know, this huge technical staff, and he he was like, "When I become a manager, that's what I want." And so when he went to Blackpool, um, he said, I, "I don't want money for players." I want money for staff. That's what I want. He's like, I've got three staff at the moment. I want like, I want 15. And he was like, don't worry about buying me players. Get me staff. And so there are, and and that took him a long, long way. Bolton finished seventh in the Premier League. Like that took them a, a, and him a long, long way. And, and maybe like those advantages, Allardyce um, exploited early in his career aren't, aren't there anymore because people have caught up. But essentially... If you do these things, if you do what you do well, then you can absolutely go over and above your ceiling. And and it's interesting, I guess, talking about Leeds. I don't know how much Leeds use data or anything like that or how much. It's just they have um, a really messianic coach um, in Bielsa who... Um, you know, I know about Bielsa's career and he either absolutely flops or he absolutely succeeds because it all depends on the buy-in of the players and he found it easy to get the buy-in of the Leeds players, um, where he's he's struggled at other clubs. So there there are all there are all these things that go into it. But Brentford, I just look at Brentford and and I mean it's got them this far, it's got them into the Premier League. Like, even if they get relegated next season, that is still a success. They haven't been in the top flight for, is it like 80 odd years or something? It'd be a
1: 300 million payout for a club that was acquired for (laughs) 700,000.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you look at the transfer business they've done as well and what they've sold players for just. Absolutely unbelievable, and that that doesn't happen by accident. You know, Ollie Watkins was nearly in the Euro squad for England. He was a Brentford player this yeah. time last year. Like he was play, he played for Brentford in the playoff final in August. And so th- this kind of stuff just it doesn't happen by accident. And I'm I'm really I'm thrilled for Brentford, and I, and I do I think they're they're such an example. To any team who, like, that's not to say that there are only so many places in the Premier League. So, like, not everyone's going to keep coming up from League 2 to the Premier League. But if if you're in League 1 or League 2 and you do that, you might go up a division or you might stay up. You might, you know, you might just stay professional. Like, I think they're a huge example.
1: Yeah. And I think, Paul, that where I want to finish on this, though, is just how it challenges certain ideas about football but also the ideas about who should be in charge in football one of the things that was done when benham took over was he got rid of a lot of guys he sacked a lot of scouts he sacked a lot of the people running the club who were you know football men and replaced them with people who understand the analytics who understood you know the way he wanted to analyze the game and approach the game and i think we've already seen in punditry for example you know this this sort of old boy network of of ex-players who become pundits versus some of the other punditry that's out there from people who are really sharp about the game and know the game is changing the way people think about who they want to hear about the game from. I think the same is is going to happen and is happening behind the scenes at clubs. That just because you played the game, just because you're a, quote, football man, doesn't mean, first of all, to be clear, it doesn't mean you're an idiot. It doesn't mean you don't know football. It doesn't mean you're not brilliant about football. But it doesn't mean you automatically do. Because football is now about things more than just what you learn from kicking the ball on the pitch. And... You know, we see that at some of these clubs, that that the people that are really in charge of a lot of decision-making are not in the traditional sense, in the way, you know, it's sort of talked about, quote, football men, and women for that matter. So, I mean, for you, Paul, is, is the real lesson from Brentford, and, and are, are they sort of the apotheosis of what we talk about when we talk about the Liverpool model or the Leicester model, whatever, in terms of coming from fourth division up into the Premier League? And is it going to evangelize this idea of Changing the way you look at the game, changing the way you recruit players, changing the way you staff your club to be sharper, to be smarter, and eventually more efficient.
3: So, wasn't uh, Ted Knutson? Didn't he have some time at Brentford? Yeah, Mr. and and, and Michelin,
1: Yeah, because they they the, yeah. uh, he also owned Michelin and not Ted. Yeah, but and uh, they kind of used what they learned from Michelin to to employ that at Brentford.
3: Yeah, and Ted uh, did a bit of uh, gambling on the circuit beforehand, wasn't he? He was a professional Uh, gambler. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as was this guy and the other guy who who Mm -hmm. split apart to do Brent. I don't know a huge amount about Brentford, but I kind of know the basic background story. Um, I think you're right. I uh, I see that issue of the, like, you can't have the old football mentality informed by some stats because they'll just, you know, uh, they'll just leave baby in the corner. Yeah. Um, like no one puts they'll be baby like, in the corner mm-hmm. nobody puts baby in the corner they'll be, the the report will gather dust on the desk and then they'll pick up the phone to their old buddy and get the the call for you know they you need that the pair of eyes the scout that and you do need that but to get that blend right uh Brentford were in a position down the leagues where they could take all the risks in fact the risk was not taking the risks because they weren't going to get to the top doing it the traditional way the, the trick for somebody, I don't know if, if we're ready for it, but the trick for somebody higher up the league is to hire the guy in Brentford because he's now com- he's now kind of the 2.0 or 3.0 version of it where he's mixed the football and the analytics because you're right, if you just have all the old football guys and it's not necessarily an age thing, it's a mentality, it's all your instincts are now hardwired um for clubs further up the line to have the confidence and especially for a club, uh, once you get up to where we are, where you have so much to lose, uh, you're going to be risk averse and nobody wants to look that stupid and get it that bad that you need the confidence of bringing in somebody Who's done it before? And let's face it, nobody's done it before. You got Brentford, you got Leeds to some degree, you got mate Leicester with a different formula and to a lesser degree stats heavy. And there's probably co- a couple of other clubs knocking around. You got Leal, um, who've who've absolutely killed it with uh, uh, stats data analysis, and he says artificial intelligence, but. Um, from what I know of artificial intelligence, there's a lot of foo-foo dust sprinkled around just to make your, your stats and your data s- sound cooler than everybody else's, so who who knows. So there's probably only a few clubs that have really done it, and they've all started from the position of nothing to lose. But for clubs that have something to lose, they need to bring in somebody who can combine both worlds um, as much so that the people in the organization above them and around them will trust them because it's one thing to be right. It's another thing to have people believe you, trust in you and take the risk, especially when the first couple of people you bring in f- <clears throat> flop, because let's face it, most transfers are somewhere between bad or OK. And when you get up to the upper levels, it's hard for these uh, these long shots to thrive. So. It it's, gets much harder when you get into the rarefied air. You, the clubs have too much to lose. You gotta bring in somebody who's done it, who has the confidence, who can combine football and analytics 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 and you gotta all of do those or, things. You gotta combine all of them. Mm-hmm. All of them. And organizational change management and culture. And yeah. that's that's really, really tough. Uh, but you can bring in consultants for that, so that's yes. good. Yeah, oh gosh,
1: there's always consultants. <laughs> My gosh. I mean, hey, you know what we should start? We should start the a- AVP consultancy firm and just sure. consult on something and see if we can get hired. <clears throat> do not hire us. <clears throat> you know what's interesting? One of the things, they, they actually, Brent, uh, Benham got rid of the Brentford Academy. And you might say, well, that's yeah. a terrible thing to do. It would be a terrible thing to do for like a big club. He had a good reason to do it with Brentford and, and you can read more about it if you want. But one of the interesting things he said is, They believed, they fundamentally believed, his group, that you need to see an academy player play for the first team 35 times before you really know what you have. And most big clubs just can't afford to do that. They don't have the time to let an academy player play 35 times for them. So they wind up moving on from players or not signing players who they just don't think will get there. And and Brentford scooped up quite a few of those, uh, those players that way. But it is sort of an interesting thing to hear in terms of how quickly we evaluate talent, academy talent, and say he's good enough, he's not good enough, and I'm certainly guilty of that. And uh, 35 times a lot to play, but I think yeah, it's a reminder. Rick
3: played 44 times and you still rubbish him. It's a joke. Yeah, it's a joke. It's,
1: it's a joke. To be fair, I was right. Nah, no, it's also a joke. Um, but you know. I mean, it's funny if you if you have ever watched the movie Moneyball or studied baseball. Like baseball really went through it. Now, baseball is a bit of a unique sport because it's a high event sport. Someone might have a thousand at bats, and you can look at how they hit. But you'd have guys with spreadsheets saying, "Here's his on base percentage. Here's his, you know, his batting average. And here's I don't I don't even know all of the, you know, OPS and all this stuff. There's a lot of really advanced metrics in baseball, but it's really high event. You have tons of data. You have these guys with spreadsheets and sitting in the scouting room were guys writing scouting reports and I'm not joking with things like girlfriend isn't very pretty, could have confidence problems or took him out to dinner, didn't finish his dinner, not sure he's a real power hitter. You know, I mean, those were real scouting reports versus these guys with spreadsheets and they would say, oh, look at the nerd with his spreadsheets when they were deciding who to give millions of dollars on by saying his girlfriend's not pretty, might not have confidence. So, it is hard to change old ideologies, old methodologies, but sometimes you change them and you look back and you go, "How did we ever see it a different way?" and I, I think we are starting to be on the precipice of turning that corner in football, maybe you know not to that level of, of absurdity, but but to some extent. Let's leave it there. Presumably things will break over the weekend that we can talk about next week and we'll get into the Euros. We'll have our Euros daily with Phil Costa, so you'll have a a short episode every single day to keep you up to date with the Euros as as things roll on. Arsenal going to Florida this summer. We may be there, but we will certainly be in Las Vegas August 19th to 22nd at the Win. The full announcement is coming. But this is the last tease you're going to hear before the full announcement. August 19 to 22nd at The Win. Uh, hoping to get some some help from our friends at Arsenal America with this. We've got some influencers and broadcasters coming. Uh, a lot of podcasts will be there and events going on and watch parties and things. So you can start to think about that. August 19 to 22nd at The Win, Las Vegas. Uh, there'll be all kinds of fun stuff. So uh, Tim's on Twitter. Stuberto, thanks, Tim.
2: My pleasure as always.
1: Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Pause, pause it in my pants. Thanks, Paul. <clears throat> Part two of Clive's transfer manifesto, uh, lovingly titled but somewhat jokingly, it's just a three-part series on transfers. The defense and goalkeepers will be out tomorrow for patrons, and the midfield is already done. If you want to join for that, we love you, and we'll talk to you after Arsenal ten transfer window. No.